0: And I remember the last time I was here, you were going through Psalms, and Jean Cordell had chosen my, one of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 42, 43, which was also about navigating a sin-damaged world. And it comes from the same sort of place as the Psalm we're looking at today, Psalm 73, acknowledging that things are not the way they're supposed to be. The big story, according to the Bible, is that God made all things well and good. Our ancestors, if you like, lived permanently on top of a mountain. Everything was great. But then they rebelled and they decided they didn't want to live with God's definition of the true and the good and the beautiful. They were going to choose the true and the good and the beautiful for themselves. And God warned them that a whole lot of ugly consequences would happen if they went down that route. But they went down it, and every generation since then has been going down this route. So now we no longer live in a mountaintop. We now have to navigate a sin damaged world, which is a series of hills and valleys. Sometimes it's good, other times it's shockingly bad. But God has made it clear in His Word that a day is coming in the future where he will restore what we have damaged. He will, what the Bible calls, create again a new heaven and a new earth, and once again we will live as if we're always on a mountain top. But that's not this day. This day we need to learn to navigate this sin-damaged world of hills and valleys. (coughs) And it's helpful to remind ourselves that when we think of a sin-damaged world, it's not just sin out there. It's also within us here. The psalmist is going to talk about just how distorted his view was of life when he took his eyes away from what his Lord had been teaching him. I have to confess that I exhibit all too many signs that I am also damaged by the fall. I worked out that I am a truth seeker as well as a truth avoider. It seems to me that we fallen human beings like the idea of truth in general, but we're not too wild crazy about all that transparency and open honesty all the time. It's almost as if truth is nice, but too much truth can be overwhelming, very hard to swallow. Those are the words that came to me, those are the thoughts that came to me when I was reading a review of a book called The Happiness Effect by Donna Freitas. Donna Freitas spent an awful lot of time studying human beings and our 21st century experience which is brand new to us of how to navigate social media, how to navigate spending ever more time online. What is online living doing to us human beings? And Donna Freitas says that the media plays up things that are not as significant as something that is far more significant. She says this, that we, we hear about bullying and stalking and sexting, and these are not pleasant of course, but she says there is something far more insidious that is damaging us human beings. She says simply this, online life requires the simple unrelenting drive to look perfect and successful at all times. 75% of the downloads of the software Facetunes are apparently done by young women who use Instagram. Facetunes allows you to alter your face to the perfect face you always wanted and then alter your body before you place the perfect you online whatever your social media choice is. Donna Freitas' book, The Happiness Effect, has been given this rather revealing subtitle How Social Media is Driving a Generation to Appear Perfect at Any Cost. And apparently, churches are discovering that as social media shaped people walk into church totally uncertain about just how authentic, how true they can be in a, in a culture that is pushing them to look perfect at all times. But in a church community like the one here, where we value this counter-cultural, countercultural habit, this process of discipling, where we very soon discover that this God-centered process of transformation that is altering us requires us to be honest with God, to be at the very least be transparent with God. You see, discipleship helps us to throw off those ugly shackles that sin has forged for us, but it will require us to touch reality all the time as God defines it. The, oh, I'm pointing there, aren't I, (laughs) laptop. uh, It seems to me that God ensured that Psalm 73 was placed in the Bible for a very simple reason. Because God is looking for real relationship with his people. Honest, true relationship. In other words, God wants us to be able to articulate our doubts, our fears, and dare I add this one, even our disappointment with the way he runs the planet. The author of this psalm is disappointed with the way God runs the planet and he articulates it. You see, pain and suffering are in God's hands and even these tools he will use to reshape us, to restore our damaged humanity, to return us to the image of the perfect human being, the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 73, Is written by a man called Asaph. He is a spiritual heavyweight. He is one of three priests and songwriters, in other words he also helped lead God's people in praise and worship. He's one of those three that was appointed by King David after King David had the Ark of the Covenant brought up to Jerusalem in 1 Chronicles chapter 15. I want you to know that you're reading the words of a spiritual heavyweight. He is not a naive believer who still thinks that just because God loves us, that surely means he won't take us through some very dark valleys indeed. Valleys that are designed to reshape us, to restore our humanity. Here is a leader of God's people, and yet he uses this psalm to acknowledge the fact that his fallen human tendency starts to distort his view of life. He starts to see life without the benefit of those biblical lenses. Lenses that the Spirit of God is shaping for all of us through his word and through his world. A lens that allows us to touch reality because we get to see life as God sees it. Well let's follow Asaph because clearly he is very confused. Remember Asaph is writing this psalm on the other mountaintop. Verse 1 is on the first mountaintop, verse 28 at the end is the second mountaintop. And the psalm he travels through a valley that he created. He's now writing with the wonderful hindsight. In verse 28, of what he experienced at the beginning. In the beginning, before he went through this dark valley, he wrote these words, verse one: "Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure of heart." Now, if he looked up with his quill pen and his manuscript, and he looked at us and said, "Milford Baptist Church, wouldn't you agree with that? Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are good, of, pure of heart." Yeah, we probably would say, "Yeah, that sounds fair and reasonable." Well, I want you to take a very deep, lungful of that fresh air of faith that you're reading in verse one, because we're about to plunge into a valley filled with Asaph's smog of self-pity, pain and distrust, because Asaph is very disappointed with the way that God is running this planet. For Asaph, his particular issue is, That he notices that people who spit in God's face still seem to live fun, happy lives. You can name your confusion. Yours may be very different to Asaph. Whatever your confusion is about how God runs this planet, plug it there in verse 3. We all, you see, have to come to the shocking reality somewhere in the journey of life that we're just not in control. And the one who is in control may not reveal to us the big story or answer our calls for help as quickly as we'd like him to. Asaph, you see, has started to fall into a valley of his own making simply because he threw away those lenses that the Spirit of God was fashioning for him through his word and through his world, helping him to see life as God sees it. As he takes off those lenses, he starts to take his eyes off of his savior, and he now starts to focus on the myriad of ugly monsters that fill the landscape of a sin-damaged world. Disappointment with God is one of those things that all human beings go through. Habakkuk is another excellent example, another priest, in other words, a spiritual heavyweight, who also discovered what everybody has to work out eventually, that God refuses to be our genie in a bottle. We apparently go through three distinct stages of shock when we discover that God just doesn't do what we want him to do when we want him to do it. The first stage is where Habakkuk is, simply questioning God's wisdom, questioning his goodness, questioning his grace. I love this picture of Habakkuk. He is known as the questioning prophet. What on earth is going on is written all over his outstretched hands and the shock on his face. Listen to him in his little book, Habakkuk chapter one verse one, he opens up with these shocking words of confusion and frustration. "How long, O oh Lord, must I call for help, but you just don't listen or cry to you violence, but you don't save." If you can take home anything this morning, take home the simple assurance that God can take your fear. God can take your doubt, God can take your disappointment with the way he runs the planet. You see, God has ensured that the words of Asaph and the words of Habakkuk were recorded in the Bible for our benefit. Because being honest with God is a sign of real relationship, and that is what God is looking for amongst his people, real relationship, meaningful relationship. Well let's watch Asaph because he's now going to descend into this valley of despair that he created. When we take take off those glasses we start to notice that pessimism enters into our world and we get this very distorted understanding of the world around us. So how do the wicked appear to Asaph as he climbs down into this valley of his own creation? Well, firstly, you'll notice, because his confusion is the way God permits the wicked and to get away with all sorts of things, He, according to Asaph, they're able to avoid all the pain and confusion that <coughs> afflicts all the other eight billion of us on the planet. They foolishly elevate themselves up like little gods. That's what he's saying in verse 6. They wear their pride like a necklace. Without any shame at all. A bit like the poster that reads, He who has the most toys at the end of life is the winner. And as far as Asaph is concerned, they are winning. Now, of course, you and I could be on either one of those two mountaintops and we notice what's happening to Asaph and we could shout out to him Asaph, I don't think you'll find that the Lord thinks of the wicked like you're thinking of him now. We might want to quote Isaiah chapter 57. We could say, Asaph, long after your time, this prophet Isaiah is going to be inspired by God to write these words, Isaiah 57 verse 20, the wicked are like the tossing sea which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. And Asaph, let me tell you, Isaiah goes on to write words that people repeat all over the globe. Isaiah wrote these words, there is no peace for the wicked, says God. We could say, Asaph, you know, long after your time, this great North African bishop called Augustine will write these words, we will be endlessly restless until we find our rest in God. Well, I hope your lungs are still full of that fresh air of faith that you uh, breathed in in verse 1 because you're going to need it because we haven't quite hit the bottom yet. We're about to hit it. The bottom of a valley that Asaph made. You don't get any lower than verses 13 and 14. We finally hit the valley floor. It's dark, it's dank. It smells of hope rotting in a cesspit of despair. If God has lo- lost interest in justice, if rotten people are being blessed and good people are rotting, life just becomes unjust. If, in verses 15 and 16, Asaph actually holds himself back from jumping over the chasm into total denial of God. Why? Not because he heard any response from God at all. But Asaph, it dawns on him that as a priest, if he was to vocalize all his distrust, his disappointment, his anger with God, he could destroy the walk of people who watch him to see where godliness leads. There are times that I like to remind myself of Proverbs chapter 17, verse 28. Even a fool can appear wise if he just teaches himself to keep his mouth shut. That's where Asaph is. Now, for Asaph, of course, the shock came from discovering that even at the bottom he never heard a word from God. But for Habakkuk, the shock was exactly the opposite. God responded to Habakkuk's doubts. He responded loudly and clearly, and Habakkuk wrote it in his little book, Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5. God tells Habakkuk exactly what he didn't want to hear. Listen to this. I am about to do something in your days that even you will not believe, even if I tell you. Maybe that's why God doesn't tell us sometimes. We'd never believe him. I am about to raise up the Babylonians, the very tool that God will use to punish his people Israel. Have you ever prayed one of those thanks a lot prayers? That's where Habakkuk is. Habakkuk realizes that if he thinks it's bad now, God is just saying it's about to get worse. And here's a priest who learned in the early days of his theological studies, That God knows what's best and he knows when it's best. Well, we are noticing now that Asaph stumbles across the very things that he threw away in his frustration with God. He stumbles across those specks that helps him to see life as God sees it. In verse 17 he writes these words, Until I enter the presence of God, and then my perspective changed those respects those specs restored reality to him as God sees it his courage is now going to come to him as he bows before the God who knows everything and not before his very distorted very limited understanding of life well let's watch him because he's about to get a little excited because now um, He's going to be able to climb up. Sorry, I just missed that one. He's about to climb up up the other side of the valley. He's now starting to see with these restored specks that actually the rebellious only has the illusion of stability. Never at peace they are inexorably sliding further and further away from God and further away from reality. But one day, reality is going to hit them like a ton of bricks. Eternal separation from God, that's what he writes about in verses 18 to 20. But notice how these newly found glasses don't only help him to see other people more clearly, helps him to see himself more clearly. Look how he describes himself in verse 21. I was senseless and ignorant. My bitterness had turned me into a brute beast. Well, we're gonna have to pick up the pace a little bit because now Asaph starts to run up the other cliff. He's enjoying the fresh air that he once experienced on the other mountain top. He is now aware of a fellowship with God that he can enjoy with utter abandonment, a relationship that he had neglected because of his own self-pity. As Asaph stands squarely on that second mountain top, he's able to breathe the same fresh air of faith that he was able to breathe in verse 1. Asaph's vision now is in line with God's vision of life. But notice this. God has not answered even one of his questions. No response to his disillusionment and frustration. No answers, just a chance to see life as God sees it. Asaph is experiencing the same reorientation of faith that Habakkuk experienced. The fear-defying, doubt-undermining place of worship. The fear-defying, doubt-undermining place of worship. Worship of a God who knows what is best and when it's best, but he doesn't always reveal that story as quickly as we'd like him to. You see, that might be why we worship him and he doesn't worship us. Because he knows what's best and he knows when it's best. Well, it's time for me to conclude. Horatio Spafford. It was a godly man who put his wife and three daughters on a ship bound for New York. He was going to join them sometime later. He just had to finish off some business. Within a week, he'd received a telegram from his wife who'd made it to New York. She explained how mid-Atlantic, total freak storm had taken the ship down, and his three daughters went down with the ship to a watery grave. His wife survived, and the rescuers took her back over to New York. Working through his pain, he decided to buy himself a ticket on a transatlantic steamer leaving from Liverpool heading towards New York. He asked the captain that Mid-Atlantic, when the captain thought, this is the place where that ship went down with your three daughters, he said, tell me, because I want to come on board. And he stood on that deck. And he said the ironic thing was, the sea was calm. It was peaceful. The sun was going down. And he said it was then that the words of that great hymn that he would later write down came to him when peace like a river attendeth my ways, when sorrow like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, you have taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Friends, I said that this was going to be about navigating a sin-damaged world. So I want to pause and just say, how do we apply this psalm to 21st century living? Thousands of years after Asaph wrote it, what can we do to apply 21st century living to that valley that he walked through? Well, I would say application number one as we navigate the sin-damaged world, we need to be very careful about letting go of the most important relationship any human being could ever enjoy in the face of the planet. You see, the next valley you enter into, you will feel as if God has abandoned you when he hasn't. And in your anger and frustration, much like Asaph, you could say, that's it. I'm cutting God out. My wife and I went to um, the United States to do postgraduate studies, studying for the ministry. This is the irony of what I'm about to tell you. And I had figured in my head that if we saved this much money, I would get through the first year of tuition, living, etc. And then apparently I'd get a visa and I could get a job off of campus where I'd earn enough money and we'd get through the next four years without any problem at all. And somewhere in the back of my mind, I was just thinking, Lord, you know, go help the famine in Africa. You don't have to worry about me. I've got this sorted. I can can manage this. And God is about to teach me that it's dependence and relationship that he's looking for. And I remember in that first week going to pay that first semester of tuition and I looked at the bill and, wow, this is high. And I went home and I calculated we didn't have enough money to make it to that first milestone on my cunning plan where I could get a visa. And I said to my wife, with tears in my eyes, God has let us down. He brought us all the way to the other side of the world for nothing. What a waste this is going to be. And I can remember it was about the first week, possibly up to 10 days, that I decided to cut God out. Just, that's it. I didn't, I refused to pray. I would not study my Bible, but I just went to lectures and went through the motions. And within a week to 10 days, God had softened my heart by his pure grace. He was going to meet all our needs another way, not by my cunning plan, his way. Friends, beware the next valley you enter into. The darkness and the evil one will ask you, so where is God now? He's right next to you. He hasn't let go of you, but he's allowing the valley to reshape you and to depend on him more. Here's a second application as we try to navigate the sin-damaged world. Let's be very careful about deconstructing our faith in public. It's now very popular on social media. During the pandemic, I think I tracked two or three Christian leaders on both sides of the the Atlantic who gave up on God. They walked away. Significant Christian leaders, usually it was the ethics of the Bible or, or something that really bothered them about church life. And of course, on social media, you can You can deconstruct your faith. You can tell everyone how you're walking away from God in front of millions of people. Asaph wisely remembered that every valley is surrounded by two mountains, and he will come up the other side, and he may well regret if he casually destroys the walk of other people. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that you shouldn't have good counselors, good friends, people you can cry with but beware of announcing it to the world. You'll regret it, and you may well destroy people who are watching you. We're all being watched by someone who just want to know, what does this walk with Jesus look like? Finally, if you ever wondered why I put this coaster on your um, seat, Asaph realised when he made it to the other mountain that he's got to cultivate this relationship. He's got to stop himself making the same mistake again. This is a coaster from a new course that is being test, tested in this year and may come out publicly next year. It's called the Twelve Stations of Discipleship, and they very cleverly have just used part of the London Underground just to remind you there are twelve, at least twelve aspects of growing in your relationship with God, becoming a better disciple. 12 stations that you're going to have to constantly revisit. If you disciple another person, take them through these 12 stations. Now, take, for example, I'm looking at care. If you flick the, poster, uh, the coaster over and then you look up, what does care mean? Care, bottom left-hand corner. We care for ourselves and those around us. In other words, part of your discipleship is looking after what God has given to you and then looking after other people as well. If I flick it round, um, notice. What on earth is notice? Well, if I flick it over, notice, top right hand corner, we notice God in Scripture and the world. So we take his word seriously, we study Scripture in order, like Asaph, to work out how God responds to me and this world. But we also notice God in the world. Take time to walk through the forest. Just enjoy what God constantly makes. Look at little people and notice that God's hand is upon little people. And they often reflect just the joy and fun that God thoroughly enjoys. Now, here's another one. Uh, Flourish. Visit the station of flourishing as you develop your relationship with the Lord. Flourish, flick that over, it's in the middle there. We care for creation and all God's gifts. In other words, we know that our ancestors and us have damaged God's creation and we want to do our bit to restore what we can in our little part of the world. But not only creation, all the other gifts that God's given us. Your car, your job, your family, your ability to switch lights on. The flick of a switch, something our ancestors could only dream of. We thank God for his wonderful, wonderful gifts. All part of discipling. All part of growing up and becoming like Jesus. Because God wants us to be free samples of Jesus to everyone who wants to know, what is your God like? Friends, let's be people who live transparent lives before God. Let's be people who can take the pain of the world before the throne of grace because we know that this relationship, living transparently before God, is the most important relationship. The essential part of that relationship is living transparently before him because no one can live A better relationship than a transparent relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.